<laughs> okay, so our topic today is transgenderism. Uh, let, me, let me open with a caveat that I have not studied this in the kind of detail um, that I have some of the other stuff we've talked about. So uh, most of what I'm going to be doing today is going to be closer to like a book report uh, where I am going to, um, uh, in 40 minutes or so, give you an overview of Mark Yarhouse's book, Understanding Gender Dysphoria. Uh, this guy is, um, he is a, a good thinker, he is a committed Christian, uh, and he is a compassionate man who has worked um, uh, he's, this is part of his expertise, is in this area. Um, and what he does really well, that, uh, that I like, is he, he lives in that tension between, like we do in this class, neither fundamentalism nor liberalism. So if you're wanting to get more, to get into this in more detail, that's your, your place to stop. Mark Yarhouse, Understanding Gender Dysphoria. Um, so check that out if you want to know more. Um, but here is uh, my doing my best to represent uh, his work. Um, so what is transgenderism? Um, we will think of it as um, a person's perception uh, that their um, biological or anatomical reproductive birth sex doesn't align with their sense of their own gender. So um, to put it more maybe crassly, it would be uh, one born with a penis but feels like female, or someone born with a vagina who feels like a male. So their kind of reproductive sex at birth doesn't seem to align with their perception of their gender. Um, so when, and we'll talk about different manifestations of that uh, in a bit, um, to, uh, to let you know maybe where I'm coming from on this, when, when I first started learning about this, uh, my initial reaction uh, was probably less than charitable. Um, I assumed that uh, this was primarily uh, a group of kind of nonconformists who wanted to deconstruct basic ideas, create their own realities, uh, and make everyone kind of um, uh, subject to the realities that they uh, have in their own minds. Uh, and course, you know, I, I wanted to push back against that. That seemed um, wrong on multiple levels. Um, I thought about it similar, do you remember Rachel Dolezal uh, several years back, the lady who was white and, and said she was uh, African American uh, for years, um, and uh, most people thought That's, that, that doesn't work. Um, and that was primarily how I viewed uh, the transgenderism um, topic. Uh, since then, particularly since reading Mark Yarhouse's book, um, because truth be told, I, I don't have a personal relationship with anyone uh, who is at least openly transgender, so, um, so I don't have that to help shape my understanding of this. Um, but, but I do have a more nuanced opinion now. Um, I'll kind of give you three ways. Uh, first... Um, my prior assumption that this, um, the, this larger transgender umbrella um, was mostly nonconformists who wanted to deconstruct basic ideas and create their own realities, um, that didn't fit well uh, with the data of the high suicide rates among transgender persons. Um, that is, 
Uh, there are a lot of people uh, in the transgender community uh, for whom this is a deeply uh, sad and troubling and painful experience, uh, that they are not doing this to get attention or to be um, controversial or troublemakers or whatever, uh, that there is a lot of pain um, that can be associated with this uh, among some in the transgender community. Um, I also um, have uh, realized that it is uncharitable of me uh, to assume that the loudest voices um, or even maybe the more um, problematic abuses of this, uh, that, the, that those represent everyone in the group. Um, that while there may be certainly some, and there are, transgender activists who are nonconformist, hell-bent on deconstructing what's assumed to be natural, um, I shouldn't assume that's characteristic of all. It, kind of in the same way that, um, that there are some really loud-mouth people proclaiming to be Christian, and it's entirely problematic. Or I, I don't want anyone to hear those Christians and think they represent all Christians. Uh, and so if I want someone to have that kind of charitable response uh, with those who are misrepresenting or, or maybe the loudest, most extreme voices, so I should do the same uh, when I'm seeking to understand transgenderism. I shouldn't allow my entire characterization to be based on the loudest voices in the group. Uh, so that, that caused me to think, okay, uh, or, or I've, I've learned to, uh, to have more nuance. So even though I keep saying that about so many issues, I'm still guilty of, uh, of not always doing that um, as my uh, default position. Now this is not to say that I, I am, um, that I, I have you know, put my guard down on this whole topic. There are still some things that I find deeply disturbing about some of the more radical positions uh, that fall under uh, some transgender um, activist uh, movements, um, especially when uh, this can lead to systems that put innocent people at risk. Um, and some of you may be familiar with um, how uh, in some, some si prison systems, um, males, uh, those born uh, male, are claiming to be female to get into women's prisons uh, and this includes violent and sexual offenders. Um, and that seems just really deeply problematic. Uh, so although, um, I, although I have more compassion, although I think that I shouldn't, um, I shouldn't put everyone in the same box, it doesn't mean that uh, I therefore think um, that, uh, that, that we need to be wise about how we navigate this. So here's Mark Yarhouse, as we're thinking about nuancing this better. One of the things that he said, and I think he's quoting somebody else, and it's just stuck with me uh, throughout the book, he says, if you know one transgender person, you know one transgender person. Um, and, you know, that, that really, that really hit, uh, hit me. Um, and through his uh, countless hours and clientele uh, that he has worked with on this issue, um, he says the following, most transgender people I know are not in favor of a genderless society. I thought, how interesting, because most of the transgender activist voices that I hear seem to be in favor of a genderless society. So that, that itself uh, surprised me. He also says, I know many people who are navigating gender identity concerns 
who love Jesus and are desperately seeking to honor him. I think it would be a mistake to see these individuals as rebellious as a group. Um, so, um, if we are thinking uh, person to person and not assuming that uh, the loudest and most extreme voices represent the whole group, um, how might we uh, then listen to this with wisdom and compassion and integrity? Um, so, I'll give you the overview of, uh, of what he he discusses here. So we can start with uh, three common manifestations of transgenderism. This doesn't cover everything, but this is the, um, the three most common. That is uh, someone who is, who's, uh, where are you, Hunter? Natal sex? Uh, am I getting the, where are you, Hunter? Show me, raise your hand. All right. Hunter has been helping me, uh, but he is uh, not, not uh, on the hook for anything I get wrong. Um, but uh, natal sex means something like your anatomical sex at birth, since there's gender reassignment surgery and other kinds of things. So you're basically your anatomical sex at birth is woman, but you identify as, or but they identify as a male gender. That's one manifestation, um, and and then the uh, the other two most common uh, are um, males who identify as female, but there's a difference between. Uh, or those two different types. So there's some that are basically the, um, the kind of mirror of the, those who are anatomically woman but identify as male. Those are, that is, they are anatomically born um, male, so their natal sex is male, but they identify as female, and they tend to be attracted to men. Um, uh, so they, they see themselves as women, um, and uh, in fact, then it leads to them kind of seeing themselves as straight uh, because they are attracted to men, um, even though they were born as, uh, as ma male. Um, the other type um, is uh, those whose natal sex is male um, and they identify as female, yet they are attracted to women. Um, I think this is um, Bruce Caitlyn Jenner. This, this, is, this is the... Um, the, the category that, um, that uh, Jenner falls under. Uh, and what's different about this from the previous one is they are attracted to women. Uh, this, this category is called autogynephilic, if I am saying this right. Um, and their transgender experience is typically linked with arousal at the thought of being female. Um, so it, it's kind of a different category than the first two we looked at where um, where it doesn't have that, that piece to it. Um, so that gives you a little bit of an overview of the three common manifestations. And we're keeping in mind, if you know one transgender person, you know one transgender person. And I think that's the case too, With even though we have these three broad categories, we don't try to force anyone um, maybe uh, into that completely. So those are three common manifestations. Th this helped me a little bit because I remember watching the that whole um, Bruce Caitlyn Jenner interview, and um, it just was was hard to even make sense of. It, you have I had the sense of both like compassion and that's just something wrong about this. Um, and, and again, I, I don't know what my feelings should be. Uh, that's just what my feelings uh, were. But uh, realizing that the experience of someone like Bruce Caitlyn Jenner, I don't even know what language to use here, um, uh, is not true of all, um, all those born male uh, who identify as female. Um, they, they don't all, um, yeah, they don't all experience uh, their transgenderism the same way. 
Um, what is the cause of, of uh, some having this gender dysphoria is the language. I don't know if I've used that yet. Gender dysphoria is, is we'll, we're talking as Mark Garhouse will here, lowercase g, lowercase d, gender dysphoria, that sense of incongruence. There is capital G, capital D, gender dysphoria, which is, um, which is a more severe case of this. Um, but those who are experiencing this gender con uh, incongruity, um, what is the cause of this? Well, Yarhouse and um, some other article I read that Hunter had sent me said, it's really not clear uh, what is the cause of this. There are some theories, um, but it's, it's, it's too early to tell. Um, and the manifestations are too diverse to know for sure. So, um, so as Yarhouse explains, the studies uh, tend to be too narrow to be conclusive, um, and at most they tend to show correlation but not causation. Uh, many of these uh, studies uh, have very small samples, and um, it's often um, uh, samples among those who have already maybe undergone some hormonal treatments or have already been living as a sex or a gender different than their birth uh, gender. So it makes it really tough to figure this out. So he just says, basically, <laughs> we need to be humble and uh, uncertain at this point about uh, what, uh, whether this is nature, nurture, or some combination. Um, the, one of the most uh, predominant theories uh, that would say it is Nature is what's called the brain sex theory. Um, and if I understand this right, um, part of this is based on uh, what happens in utero, where I think particularly with uh, male fetuses, is that the plural of fetus? Um, uh, where they get two hormonal testosterone baths at different times in pregnancy. And uh, one of those affects sexual anatomy, and the other one later affects the sex-differentiated brain. And so one theory is that perhaps um, those who are experienced uh, transgenderism might uh, get the hormones for the male reproductive anatomy, uh, but something happens where they don't get the hormones for the sex-differentiated brain later. Um, as I understand, uh, that's nothing that hasn't been proven. It's just a theory uh, that might seek to explain this. Um, something else um, to that I was really surprised by because, in, in my in my thinking, if you're a man, you've got a penis and you've got XY chromosomes. If you're a woman, you've got a vagina and XX chromosomes. Um, and yet. Uh, it doesn't always work out that way. Um, I was surprised to learn uh, that while what I just said is typical, uh, sometimes uh, you have someone with uh, traditionally female genitalia with XY chromosomes and uh, uh, those with um, male genitalia and XX chromosomes. Um, and, and it just reminded me that uh, when we're thinking about uh, the importance of kind of biological embodiment, uh, that it's not always as straightforward um, as, uh, as I assumed. So that was, that was news to me. Uh, although it's not the case that those with these kind of chromosomal um, abnormalities are all transgender or anything like that, um, that just caused me to think, okay, there's, 
there is, um, it's more complicated uh, than I had assumed, uh, where I thought it was all pretty much straightforward, um, that uh, if you've got the reproductive anatomy, everything else will line up as well, um, according to your DNA or whatever it might be, and uh, that was naive of me uh, to think that. Um, and then the other complicated factor, and I think most in the church kind of recognize that this is a big gray area, is those uh, who are uh, intersex, which is, I think, the term that, uh, that used to be used that is now uh, very politically incorrect is hermaphrodite. I don't know the background about why that's not the word to be used anymore. I just know you're not supposed to, but that's, uh, that's what it's referring to, those who have kind of ambiguous genitalia. And I think... Um, you know, there, there's something to that experience that I think even as a church we recognize we're going we're gonna to handle this with a lot of compassion and humility and uncertainty about, about how we navigate that. Um, so, nature versus nurture, not entirely clear, um, but things, uh, we know that things aren't necessarily as straightforward as we might think. We also, if we're doing this wisely, um, do not hear a couple studies and think that ends the conversation. Uh, and I, my sense is that sometimes what hap- what's happened is some people might point to some studies that have, that have been undergone um, and it somehow proves that this is a completely nature thing, no nurture at all. And it's just not that conclusive. Um, the studies that, that mostly show that it's natural are very limited. They're based on things like finger length, um, of your like ring finger or pinky finger and left-handedness or something. I mean, it's it's a very narrow thing. Um, you can read more about it, uh, but it, it doesn't seem to be conclusive. So uh, we're wary of those who say this is completely uh, nurture. This is completely a result of your environment. We're also wary of those who say no, no, it's completely a result of uh, of nature. All right, we just don't know. We practice humility. Um, I would say, are there any questions, but I probably can't answer them, so I'm going to keep, <laughs> keep moving forward. Um, I will take questions at the end, although really I probably can't answer. I'm giving you about everything I know, and I'm, I hope you realize that I'm just trying to give you Yarhouse's work on this, who, whose work I really respect uh, elsewhere. Um, so uh, Mark Yarhouse says, we might think, or in his experience, in his experience there are three primary frameworks, and they can be overlapping, but three primary frameworks by which people make sense of uh, gender dysphoria or transgenderism. So these three frameworks are the integrity framework, the disability framework, and the diversity framework. Like I said, these can be overlapping, but I'll go through them one at a time. Um, The first one, the integrity framework. Uh, This, maybe I'll write this up here. You guys can get this? Oh, I'll leave that up there. So, integrity, disability, and uh, diversity. So, he says these are the common frameworks that he experiences uh, in his work with transgender individuals, in his work with churches. Uh, by which people try to um, to navigate this. So the integrity framework represents what he sees as the most common uh, framework uh, that evangelicals adopt for um, understanding this. 
Um, and in this framework, it assumes that uh, maybe outside of the intersex uh, kind of confusing situation there, that men uh, should be male and women should be female, or those you know born natally male should be. I think you know what I'm saying. Um, uh, the strength of this approach of the integrity framework, so I'll try to give strengths and weaknesses of each approach as he identifies them. The strength of the integrity framework that says uh, your natal sex should match your gender, the strength of this is it can fit uh, the biblical uh, system wherein God makes man and woman and declared them to be good. Uh, so there seems to be something important about man and woman. I think their assumption there is, is that their genders align with their sex. Um, it fits the biblical framework that, that honors that we are embodied um, so that we are not... Um, Christians should not think in terms of, like, I have this, this soulish part of me that's separate from my body, but we are embodied persons. So who we are and our bodies matters. That, that is a very Christian thing. We are created good. So, um, so that's kind of more extreme view uh, that we'll look at later that, that basically says uh, you're, you can be whoever you think you are. It's, it's, it doesn't fit a Christian system where it's more than what you think or feel. There's something about being embodied that's important too. So there is there's something to the integrity framework that fits the biblical system. It fits this idea that we are embodied. And this, if we think about the biblical plot line, it was good in creation, and the hope is for resurrected bodies, not disembodied spirits. So embodiment is from beginning to all eternity. So we are not uh, we are not giving up embodiment in the church. Uh, and so this integrity framework holds, uh, holds on to embodiment. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any expectation of that changing, in, even in the future world. Um, when Jesus says something like, uh, we'll be like the angels uh, no longer uh, marrying or being given in marriage, um, that doesn't seem to imply that we become genderless or sexless. Um, I think that is stretching that passage um, where it, it doesn't lead. Um, so that's the strength of the integrity framework, particularly the way it seems to fit the overall biblical trajectory. Uh, a weakness of the integrity framework um, is that it can sometimes, uh, or maybe frequently, uh, be married to categories of gender uh, that are uh, particularly rigid. All males must look like this. They've got to be stoic. They can't show emotion. They've got to be tough, whatever it might be. All women uh, should be kind and caring and in the home, um, kind of systems. Um, now, he's not saying the integrity framework demands that. It's just that it often gets coupled with that. Um, and so you'll get these like Bible studies on what it means to be a biblical man. Um, and it often sounds like what it means to be a man according to you know, 50s and 60s American culture. Um, and so sometimes part of the problem with the integrity framework um, is that um, the gender expressions, what it means to be male or what it means to be female, is often very culturally shaped uh, rather than it being universal. All males in every culture and every time should look like this. All females in every time and every culture should look like that. Uh, and so when those categories are really rigid, it can feel inhospitable to those who don't fit whatever the dominant categories are of a particular culture.
Does that make some sense? Um, so, so we need to be, uh, as he'll say, we need to be wary in the church of claiming things make for biblical manhood um, or uh, biblical womanhood uh, when it maybe doesn't. Um, uh, there seems to be there seems to be more diversity in Scripture, um, and uh, yeah, and sometimes the expressions we find in Scripture are just more cultural than mandated uh, expressions. Um, Okay, so that's framework number one, and its strengths and weaknesses. Framework number two is the disability framework. Um, And here, uh, part of the idea is that this is working within that uh, biblical notion that the fall, the entrance of sin, uh, has, uh, can kind of corrupt all areas of life. It doesn't just... um, Create guilt, but uh, you know it leads to death and sickness and disease, and and sin just has this pervasive effect, and that part of the pervasive effect of sin can then affect this very thing, where uh, one's natal sex uh, does not seem to align with one's gender, um, so that uh, this incongruence that some people perceive between their natal sex and their gender uh, can be a sign of the effects of the fall, of brokenness. Um, and so we don't always need to assume that this is evidence of willful disobedience. You've just chosen to feel this way. You're just doing this to be rebellious. You're just doing this to annoy your parents. You're just doing this to because you don't fit into society or whatever it might be. The disability framework is saying, no, we're not going to assume those who are feeling this gender dysphoria are doing so willfully, um, but that they might be um, experiencing the effect of the fall. I mean, and this, this would be a pretty difficult thing. Uh, and even the way Yarhouse describes it, it's, it's a, for those who really have this experience, it's, it's like a, it's a curse um, to feel like their own bodies uh, don't match their, their perception of themselves. Uh, so they, um, they often kind of hate their genitalia, um, it's hard for them to find uh, a romantic partner because um, a woman, a natal woman who identifies as male, wants someone to be attracted to her, him, as a, as a male. Um, but often this person finds uh, that lesbians um, are attracted to them as females, if you're following all this. So the people who are most typically most attracted to the transgender person are attracted to them as their natal sex, not their perceived sex. Uh, so uh, it, it just continues this sense of, of, uh, of just not, uh, yeah, things just not being right. Uh, and there's a kind of sadness that goes with this. We might, um, we might think of, um, within the disability framework, one might view gender dysphoria, perhaps analogous to how one views anorexia. Um, that is, uh, one's kind of sense of oneself doesn't match the actual embodiment that one has. So you've seen anorexic folks that you can say, well, you're way underweight and they still see themselves as overweight. That, that perception is real, um, even if it doesn't match um, what seems to be on the outside. And yet with something like anorexia, we typically uh, in the church view that more in this framework. We don't think you're you're doing that to get attention, or you're doing that willfully, disobediently. We tend to think, no, that, that's, there's some sort of deeper brokenness at work here. And so uh, we tend to assign, 
we don't assign guilt typically to the anorexic, uh, but more compassion. Or someone with um, chemical depression. Uh, we see that as a sign of brokenness, might be uh, arising naturally. Maybe there's some nurture, and, you know, nature nurture kind of thing going on here. Um, uh, but we don't think, well, hopefully no, no more when people have depression do we say, you're just choosing to be sad, just get over it. Uh, we, we think it, it's a lot more complicated than that, and we need to be a lot more compassionate in how we deal with that. So uh, that's, that's a little bit of an overview of the disability framework. Oh, and I would add, whether it's anorexia or chemical depression, since this is typically a, still a Christian framework, um, the, uh, the way to cope is not... Um, I mean, there, there will be some wiggle room on how to cope, but it's typically not coping by saying just completely embrace your anorexia or your depression. It's, it's how, can we, how can we navigate this in ways that, um, that kind of limit the effects and help you, um, help you uh, experience health and joy and whatever else. So strength of the disability framework. It does fit that biblical system of the pervasive effects of the fall. And it can feel, it can feel more hospitable uh, to transgender persons insofar as it doesn't assign guilt or shame uh, to those feeling gender dysphoria. Uh, whereas sometimes the integrity framework, sometimes it can come with that. If you don't fit, you know, typical patterns of male, female, uh, then um, there's something, you know, you need to fix that. You need to get over that. Uh, this is, okay, you might not fit that. We love you. Let's see if we can walk alongside you. Um, the weakness, of course, with the disability framework is it still might seem inhospitable to some transgender persons because it's still saying there's something wrong. It's not celebrating this experience. It's not uh, validating. Well, it's validating, but it's not saying, um, it's not saying fully embrace this. Uh, so... Um, for some, this might still seem inhospitable. And that brings us to uh, the third, um, third framework for thinking about this, and that's the diversity framework. And um, this is the one that is less within the typical Christian um, world. And this, this framework accepts and celebrates persons for however they identify themselves. So uh, regardless of how you're born, how you perceive yourself, that's fine. It's up to you. Um, he says there's, a, there's the strong and weaker versions of this. The stronger version is trying to, I think, push society uh, to dismantle all notions of uh, gender. Um, and uh, the weaker version is just basically making a home for people uh, who feel like they don't belong elsewhere. So one of the primary strengths of the diversity framework is that it is hospitable to those who don't fit into traditional patterns. It's hospitable, it offers identity, and it offers community. Uh, and this is one of the reasons Yar House identifies for why um, some of the, the LGBTQ um, community, for lack of better words, can have such a magnetism uh, for those who are um, navigating gender dysphoria because uh, they are welcomed, or they feel welcomed, um, however they might find themselves, and it gives them community. Um, and some identity. Uh, the, the weakness of the diversity framework um, as, uh, is that it can seem hard to map onto the uh, biblical uh, theological uh, view we looked at earlier that 
sees the importance of embodiment and of uh, the goodness of uh, God creating two uh, sexes. Um, so that gives you a little bit of the overwork about these three different frameworks. So what does Yarhouse advocate for given his uh, years and hours and hours of therapy um, and thought about this? So what he, he advocates for what he calls the integrity framework, that tries to bring together the strengths of all three of these. Um, he sees this as the most, uh, kind of the wisest way to navigate this as Christians. So let me read a couple quotes from him. Um, he says, Christians can benefit from valuing and speaking into the sacredness found in the integrity framework. So, the sacredness of the integrity framework, the compassion we witness in the disability framework, and the identity and community considerations we see in the diversity framework. No one framework in isolation will provide a sufficient response or a comprehensive Christian model of pastoral care or cultural engagement. So, try to bring the best of these three. So, we bring the sacredness of this sense of there's goodness to uh, male, female, man, woman uh, differences. Um, the disability framework, uh, the compassion there, um, and the diversity framework. What he really highlights here is the identity and community that the diversity framework offers. Here's something that, that struck me as he talked about this. He says when we're thinking about community. I imagine some readers will be thinking to themselves, I just want the person to choose the right path. I understand that thought. However, paths are chosen with reference to a number of factors, not in isolation. And hear this especially. People choose paths in the context of the community they have been able to form around them. If you want a person to choose a path that seems more redemptive, you will want to be part of a redemptive community that facilitates that kind of decision-making for every person who is a member. Um, so uh, if, if our communities are uh, to be places that are, are helping transgender persons um, lean more into um, this kind of integrity framework and disability framework, uh, then we have to be places um, that, that are hospitable. Um, otherwise, it, it would be... Um, like saying, if you want to be, if you, if you want to even kind of come here, you already have to have your act together. Uh, so, if we, uh, if we want to help people navigate this in a redemptive way, as he is putting it, uh, then being a hospitable communities is important. Now, of course, of course, this is kind of like we talked about last week. Uh, sometimes um, hospitality has its limits, uh, where... Um, even the most hospitable that a Christian can be or a Christian community can be while still being Christian, uh, it might still feel inhospitable. And so this isn't hospitality at the sake of, of um, one's Christian um, commitments, uh, but this is saying maybe uh, if we are putting up unnecessary barriers, uh, that's a problem. Um, and then... Uh, on top of the uh, integrity framework, he advocates that uh, those navigating this 
do so um, by uh, aiming for the least invasive solutions. Um, that, that's his, his kind of hope. So some navigate gender dysphoria by eventually just coming to terms and trying to align their, their uh, kind of embracing their natal sex. Um, others find this kind of in-between where they might um, find areas where they can... We, not right now, Sophie. <laughs> if you all close the door or come in, I don't... I don't this is too mature for my daughter. Um, it was blowing up a balloon as I was... Um, so the, the kind of, one of those less invasive ones would be occasionally maybe cross-dressing around the house or when one travels would be this kind of middle, um, middle way. And then the more extreme would be to fully adopt the other gender uh, to the point of uh, hormone therapy and sex reassignment surgery. Uh, so if that's, that's something of the spectrum, he wants one to find the least invasive and permanent um, ways of coping. Uh, he thinks that fits best with um, the Christian framework. Um, although he doesn't completely um, write off some of those more invasive ones, but you can read to see how he might navigate that. Um, he gives a handful of other, other things, but, um, but that gives you a sense of where he's coming from and maybe uh, helps us all think a little bit with a little bit more wisdom and charity as we're seeking to be... Um, neither fundamentalist nor liberal, um, informed and compassionate. So, me, Hunter, what did I, what were glaring things that I screwed up or, uh, or left out? Was okay? All right. Um, good. All right, what, what questions that I maybe can or can't? I see David back here and then uh, can David up here. anything from history going back to your search acronym, our ancestors? It's been just a modern Western day problem? So, I don't know how the church has encountered this. I know there are other cultures um, like some Native American cultures or maybe it's a Polynesian cultures where they have a kind of third category of gender. Um, but I don't know I don't know of any place where the church has encountered this. What about the Ethiopian eunuch? So, yeah, the eunuch is seen not as um, it would be closer to the intersex, I think, than than a transgender. Um, to make that one really fit, I think, would be probably pushing it farther than, than the text will allow. But, but that, does, that is a good fit for um, one who doesn't, who would have been outside of the community in Israel uh, and who is brought in. Um, but uh, I don't get a sense that he is brought in as female, but he's brought in as one who's been castrated. Um, David? That was my question. Oh, okay. Yeah. I just want to suggest a fiction book. It's not a Christian book, mm -hmm. but um, it's called This Is How It Always Is by Lauren Frankel. I don't know if anyone's read it, but it was very helpful for me. It's about parents trying to raise a transgender mm -hmm. child in a community, and um, probably the most insightful book I've ever read on the subject. And just to see how, you know, it was just very helpful. Yeah. I think. It's, a, it's, a, it's a fiction it's book, fiction. but the author has a yeah. Oh, okay. What was it called? This is how it always is. How it, this is how it always is. Okay. I have it if anybody wants to borrow it. All right. It's, it's probably the best book yeah. I've All right. Nice. So maybe it's similar to something like the Wesley Hill book where it helps, gives us some compassion maybe for this. Um, 
so yeah, anyway, um, that's, that's everything I know, I think, uh, on this. Um, and maybe it'll help us be um, the kind of community that I think that we have a very good potential to be, and that we are. Um, 